Hi, welcome to Hard Knock Life. This is Dominic Ma with, as ever, my co-host, Keith Chow. Keith, how you feeling today? Hey, Dominic. Are you, uh, by any chance, familiar with 90s era basketball? I got into basketball around that era, but tell me what you mean. <laughs> so, uh, in the 97 finals, Michael Jordan had a what's widely known as the flu game. Oh, that, against the Jazz, right? Against the Utah Jazz. He dropped like 40 points, but he had like 110 degree fever. He couldn't keep his fluids down. Scottie Pippen famously carried him off the court during a timeout. What I'm saying is you're my Scottie Pippen today, Dominic. Okay, I'll endeavor to be Scottie Pippen. <laughs> Not that I'm considering myself Michael Jordan. No, you're going to drop 40 today, despite all odds, <laughs> Keith. Yeah. I mean, I always thought there was something up with that game, personally, just because I was rooting for the Jazz at the time, because I thought they had such like a dynamic, great way of playing. All right, fine. Sorry. I, 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 we haven't taken up this point before, but I understand you're, you're one of the uh, MJ faithful. Yes. I think you're right that there was something up. Like, I don't know that... I, th- I don't think it was the flu. It was probably a hangover. Because okay. he was in Vegas the night before gambling or something. I don't know. Right. Who knows? Very possibly. <laughs> That's definitely possible. But no, I'm I'm a little under the weather, but as Michael Jordan, I will push through and score as many points as possible on this podcast. Yeah, and score a resounding win against all odds. <laughs> I mean, that's that's just how I always understood it. Like the myth, if we want to call it that, of the flu game. Not like it was a myth, like it was fake, but it was right. uh, the, the story got greater because he had he was he was all a tremendous game, game, and they won, and and they eventually won the finals and. You're right. Yeah, it, it wasn't fake. Like he was, something was wrong with him. We don't know if it was actually the flu, but uh, in in sports mythology, it's definitely up there with uh, Willis Reed coming out of the locker room with a broken ankle or whatever. Okay, well, we'll try to get through you through this one and get you to the finals. <laughs> yeah, or to the hospital, whichever comes first. <laughs> right. <laughs> so no, I could not have a podcast this week because so much stuff was happening. I definitely want to talk about El Camino, which I think both of us has watched. Yeah. Both of us being huge Breaking Bad fans. But before we get to El Camino, which will be the main thrust, I think, I need to talk about this Batman movie that's coming together. Sure. Because holy shit. Yeah. What is it? Zoe Kravitz is going to be Catwoman? Zoe Kravitz is Catwoman. Paul Dano is the Riddler. And Jeffrey Wright is Commissioner (laughs) Gordon. Joining Robert Pattinson as Batman. I mean, without the Batman characters, this would be a hell of an indie movie cast, right? Yeah, for sure. Now you're putting them in like skin tight costumes. It's like twenty thousand times better. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that fits Paul Dano's basic like physicality. I didn't realize he was cast as the Riddler, but he, yeah, he's the Riddler. Well, so the news like broke that Jonah Hill dropped out, and Jonah Hill, everyone assumed was going out for the Penguin, but I think Jonah Hill was actually going out for Riddler. And as soon as news leaked that he was out of the running, Variety announced that Paul Dano was cast as Edward Nigma. So. I mean, that's a hell of a cast. I mean, he's the perfect, especially if you're thinking of the age ranges they're going for with a younger Batman, a younger Catwoman. Yeah, totally. Paul Dano as Riddler is perfect. Like, I see him in the green Riddler costume already. This was fairly new because I wanted to talk about Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman because, holy crap, that's such good casting. Yeah, totally. Uh, she was great as, I believe, uh, MJ in the the Spider-Verse movie. I think she, I think she voiced... Mary Jane, did she not? Anyway. She yeah. did. And she also voiced Catwoman in the Lego Batman movie. So this is actually oh. her second time as Catwoman. There you go. So she's definitely versed in both animated worlds. Actually, she's versed in both live action worlds, too, because she was in X-Men First Class. Oh, was she? As one of the random mutants. I don't even remember what her name oh. was. But oh, she had, she? like 
butterfly wings or something right she i i think she was a version of grant morrison's version of angel which is one of his other creations during his x-men run i'm i'm but not angel as an archangel angel right like oh no i i I think grant morrison had this idea he would do a younger punk version of angel who had i don't know if that ended up being her code name but she had weird wings and i she had some sort of barfy acid power which i don't think was in first class (laughs) Again, I can always digress from the movies into a long-winded thing about the comic books that not necessarily <laughs> everyone needs to hear about. But yeah, point being, Zoe Kravitz, Catwoman. Right. And she's firmly entrenched in the world of Warner Brothers, which I think gave her a leg up because she was in Mad Max Fury Road. She's part of the new Fantastic Beasts Harry Potter franchise. So it, it only stood to reason that a big, huge Warner Brothers franchise would, would go ahead and cast Zoe Kravitz. Not to mention she's one of the four leads on HBO's Big Little Lies, which is also Warner Brothers property. So sure. She's firmly entrenched in the world of the WB. And now here she is. And she joins a very exclusive club of people who've played Catwoman in live action and a very awesome club of people, honestly, because I I love every single actress who's ever played Catwoman and even actresses who've played Catwoman in terrible Catwoman movies. I love the actress. So (laughs) Zoe, Zoe is uh, got big shoes to fill. I would say if I had one criticism, and this is a very light criticism, I was hoping for a Latina actress to be cast as Catwoman this time because uh, canonically, Selena Kyle is of Latinx descent in the comics. Sure. I believe she's half Cuban in the comics. I could be wrong about which specific ethnicity. In at least one origin story, I think. Right, that's sure. Right. Of that course. Sounds right to me. <laughs> right. And today, no Latinx actress has played Catwoman. So I thought this would be a good chance. I think a couple uh, actresses were in the running. Uh, Anna de Armas, who's in Knives Out, I think is the biggest name in terms of like latina actresses yeah i think you're right but you know i mean zoe kravitz if you're gonna if you're gonna put zoe kravitz in a superhero movie selena kyle totally i mean i think as much as we make fun of it as we nerds often do i think the time will come to revisit that halle berry catwoman movie and (laughs) so in in an odd way it was it was ahead of its time in a a couple weird ways you know i mean I don't know about the Halle Berry movie, but I do think I do think there is um we're going to enter a phase in which people will look back fondly on the Schumacher movies. Okay. <laughs> really? I think I mean that's already the case I think for at least Batman Forever. I think there's definitely a contingent of fans who look at Batman Forever as I wouldn't say definitive, but an effective Batman movie. I think yeah. Batman and Robin, you know, the way that people look back fondly on Batman 66 Maybe in a few years, people will look back fondly. I mean, I think Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy, there's some affection for the way she, like the campy way she plays that character, despite everything else that's bad about that movie. I don't think anyone will ever come around to Mr. Freeze. Um, Yeah, no, that was not ahead of its time. (laughs) That was a moment of its time that'll stay there. Yeah, exactly. But no, I I see what you mean. Uh, Halle Berry's Catwoman is is definitely in the campy, what what does this have to do with Batman (laughs) or anything related to Batman, I think is more... I guess in a universe where we have a movie like Joker that stands apart, <laughs> I'm not oh. saying Catwoman is Joker or Joker is Catwoman, but in these kind of one-off worlds where th- these ancillary Batman characters kind of exist on their own, you can think of a collection of those type of movies. Maybe I don't I don't know where I'm going with that Joker. Oh, Catwoman no, I, I think that is where they're going. I mean, the rogues gallery, like all villain DC movie concept, I think is burgeoning, and you know joker continues to good business but i mean just for as a point of comparison it's like i just bring up halle berry's catwoman again because you know it was slightly before superhero movies were real cool and it was even kind of like her you know she 
she felt halfway embarrassed about like as you know as an academy award-winning actress i have to do this superhero movie whereas now (laughs) it's like wow i'm get to do the superhero movie right. <laughs> um, the, so uh, just the cultural attitude has changed a little bit and I think the story behind the creation of that movie is wild because Warner Brothers had been wanting to do a Catwoman spinoff since Batman Returns yeah. and there were various permutations of Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman movie that never got off the ground and now they totally would can we just say that would oh, happen yeah. in like two seconds I mean with an equivalent star to whoever is equivalent to Michelle Pfeiffer now Oh, for sure. Ooh, I mean, might be Zoe Kravitz. Sorry. Yeah, a spinoff movie of any proportion would be would be a lot easier to get off the ground today than twenty years ago. And even talking about revisiting Batman movies, one of the cool things, and I, you know, I promise not every podcast episode is going to be me talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths, but <laughs> you know, the latest rumor is that Robert Wool, who played Knox in the first Batman movie, oh yeah, Knox, is going to make a cameo appearance in the in the Crisis. So I don't oh know how God. true that is, but like, you know, Robert Wool, I think is a very gettable actor today that you could actually get him in a cameo appearance. And it's not like he's demanding the top dollar for, you know, his uh, visage. So yeah, it's, sure. it's a plausible rumor, I guess is what I'm saying. And to see Alexander Knox kind of show up in the crisis on infinite earths just further cements the fact. And I think we mentioned last week that there's a picture of a newspaper floating around with Michael Keaton's face on it. Like it further cements yeah. the 89 universe into the, uh, into the multiple dimensions of a of the DC universe, I think that's pretty cool. And of course, you know, Selena Kyle is part of that. Totally. I mean, oh man, even more than the Crisis show itself, I can't wait for the big cast photo if they're even able to take one. <laughs> Just like <laughs> it would be so priceless if they did that. It would. I mean, again, calling back to like the George Perez giant comic splash pages that had like a million characters in them. Yeah, and he drew every one of them in loving detail. I mean, that would just be a gigantic photo. But I digress. I just wanted to say, Keith, just thought again on the Batman movie. Would you like to expound on what what you're looking forward to, or what's the what the concept is in your mind? Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm very excited. I have not been this excited for a Batman movie since I would say 2004, when when like drips and drabs were coming out about the Christopher Nolan set for Batman Begins. And I say that because. You know, by 2007, when The Dark Knight was coming out, we were already, I mean, I was very excited, but I was, I knew what I was getting, right? Like, this reminds me of 2004, because we do not know what to expect, right? We don't. I don't know if you recall, I mean, I'm, you're not as huge a Batman fan as I am, so I don't know how, like, psyched you were when, you know, there were all these rumors about Batman Begins, before it was even called Batman Begins, you know? But this idea that we were getting a director like Christopher Nolan, who yeah. at that point had only made Memento. Yeah. And I think Insomnia had come out already. But he was doing a Batman movie, yeah. you know, it was like, holy crap. Especially, when, you know, we were just talking about the Schumacher movies. They were the only things in our minds. You're right, you're right. That was the last taste in our mouth. Um, I won't say I was anticipating a ton, but I really, I absorbed that. This reminds me of that period where you don't know what to expect. We only have the Batman versus Superman kind of taste in our mouths right. <laughs> for whatever, you know. I mean, some people loved it. Fine, whatever. I'm not going to shit on them anymore. I didn't love that take on the character. Sure. But, you know, we have that. That's the only thing we have. I mean, I guess we still have the Dark Knight trilogy. Even then, that didn't end on a bright spot for me, right? Like, I didn't love the Dark Knight Rises. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, the Batman Begins was like a commanding artistic statement, and we, like, absorbed that. And, yeah, like... And then the Dark Knight, I think, was the zenith. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, totally. Going back to Batman Begins is that, like, that era where you didn't know what 
Christopher Nolan was doing. But I think similar to what Matt Reeves is doing, he had this amazing cast he was assembling. And you were going, holy crap. Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson, Morgan Freeman, Gary yeah. Oldman. What are all these people doing in a Batman movie? You know? Yeah. And and I think every casting announcement that comes out so far, it's giving me that same vibe. Like, Jeffrey Wright. Holy shit. And, yeah. and I think more so than, than when the Nolan movie came out. They're specifically playing certain characters where it's like, that makes so much sense. Whereas when uh, they were making announcements back for Batman Begins, it was like, Michael Caine is Alfred. Hmm, that's a choice. That's interesting. Mm. Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon. Wow, I wouldn't have gone that way. You know, and they ultimately ended up being amazing choices for those roles. But here we have like, like I said earlier, Paul Dano as the Riddler. That's perfect. Who is, how has no one ever thought of that? You know, or Zoe Kravitz as, as Catwoman and... Uh, Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon. That's perfect. Totally. So, yeah, I'm 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 in that mode right now where it's like, I don't know what to expect, but everything sounds amazing. Yeah, right on. And that's rare with Batman movies because, as you know, I think the the thing that usually happens with Batman movies is like the WTF castings that the internet loses its shit over, right? Like Heath Ledger as the Joker, Ben Affleck as Batman, Michael Keaton as Batman, right? Like, there's always these like out of left field choices that always end up being pretty good. Right, but <laughs> usually are followed by months and months of ridicule on the internet. I think so far, Matt Reeves has given us like, "Wow, that's pretty perfect," you know. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know like if the equivalency there between Heath Ledger Joker and Ben Affleck Batman is exactly the same texture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on the level of not knowing, yeah, maybe. I mean, Heath Ledger well, turns out to be great, and I I think. I mean, I, I think Ben Affleck is fine, but it's a very divisive subject. I think if you go back to 2007 and the first announcement of Heath Ledger as the Joker, if you were able to go in the Wayback Machine and, and pull up, I guess Twitter wasn't around, but like message boards and, you know. Oh, yeah, there was Hubbub. I do remember that. No, but people were pissed. It was like the Brokeback Mountain guy as the Joker. This <laughs> pretty boy from 10 Things I Hate About You as the Joker. Like, it was all that. You know, it was really... I would say was as divisive as Ben Affleck. I mean, he wasn't as big a star. The thing about Ben Affleck or Michael Keaton is like they're they're already huge stars. Heath Ledger was on the uprise, right? Yeah. But but I think in terms of like divisiveness, oh for sure, it was like people were pissed. Maybe it was more like Chris Evans as Captain America, kind of, you know, like the, this pretty boy Hollywood actor as this iconic role. Ah, uh, well, that yeah, you didn't know what to expect, right? Like I think you're the the divisiveness around Batman for Michael Keaton and. Ben Affleck, I think, is a little different. You're right in that it was like, who's this huge star playing a role that, you know, doesn't seem to fit because Ben Affleck is this like tabloid star and Michael Keaton was this comedy star and they're both playing like one of the (laughs) darkest, most serious superheroes ever. Sure. Whereas like Heath Ledger as the Joker, I think people took people by surprise because again, they were all they can do is think of Brokeback Mountain, 10 Things I Hate About You. Uh, I I mean, those are the only two movies people thought of Heath Ledger back then. So. But it turned out to be a good surprise. Exactly. Right. So got that creepy voice right. Rest his soul. <laughs> With this movie, the other thing that I'm excited about is, by all accounts, Matt Reeves is going for like a smaller scale noir detective yeah. story, yeah. which he said in, in all of the interviews leading up. So and even yeah. Robert Pattinson has hinted at like, this isn't going to be like your typical Batman movie, which I think we've talked about on this podcast. Like, I always felt Batman is the one comic book superhero that didn't need a $300 million budget. Yeah, that's a good idea. It should be scaled back. I mean, they always said that the Nolan movies hearken to year one, which is, you know, one of my favorite sort of like 
low-key down in the gutter kind of Batman origin stories. But it also it felt obligated to be a blockbuster. All those movies mm-hmm. had like a huge train exploding. Right. Massive bridges exploding and they were right. ramping up constantly. Um, it would be interesting to see if they could subvert that and go into sort of a you know, more intimate level of detail with those characters. Yeah. Like, I always felt a movie on the scale of Exodiac or Seven sure, would fit totally. a Batman movie much more than... Like, Batman movie as a, de- like a detective hunting down the serial killer solving crime yeah. versus, like, action... I mean, because that's the beautiful thing about Batman is that he can appeal to all these different sensibilities, but, like... He can be like the swashbuckling hero as much as he's the like down in the grime noirish detective. Yeah. The thing is, we've never gotten that in a Batman movie. And that's what I would like to see for once kind of like Batman solving crimes. You know, basically, as I said before, being Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I mean, you're you're right. Now that now that I think about it, like we've never really seen him deduct anything. Right. Basically, <laughs> basically never detecting. Oh, it'd be so great in the next Batman movie. If he actually like solved a riddle and it was like a hard riddle and it was relevant to where the victim is kidnapped or something. Right. You know, yeah, as opposed Jim, to that, Jim like, Carrey's riddles were, were pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. 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 They were, they were like, <laughs> they were so goofy. And then like when Val Kilmer's like, of course he's talking about a tennis ball. It's like, yeah, dude, like a 13 year old would figure that out. You're supposed to be the world's greatest detective. Right. That was what I called more callback to the sixties. Yeah, of course. Right. Batman style. Which I think is, it goes back to what I was saying. I think there will be an appreciation for Schumacher one day, because I think if you watch those movies as like, homage to the 60s batman they're not as bad yeah one was on cable the other day i it, it did seem like it took forever <laughs> did um, you, you should do a rewatch. literally that batman forever but you know i take your point the other aspect about the batman movie which is again at this point is still rumor but from the sounds of who who's being cast and who's being considered could potentially be where they're going is that it's basically an adaptation of jeff Loeb and tim sales long halloween oh that's interesting which again that goes back to like if they do that that's a perfect kind of it's a way that you can introduce all of the various rogues gallery without them kind of dominating the movie because sure. as you know like a ba- the other sin of batman movies tends to be like there's too many villains in them and they overshadow batman sure long halloween is literally all the villains <laughs> so right. how do you how do you do that and i think long halloween's a good one because they're like all suspects and then batman has to kind of eliminate or yeah. you know I mean, if I remember right, but the villains are sort of a piece together in a very interesting sequence, which does involve a lot of detecting right. from one to one. And it is like a kind of a genuine, like, we don't know where this is going kind of mystery. I don't know. Right. What, what are your feelings on Long Halloween? as a It's one of my favorite Batman stories. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the way they're going. Because this is another aspect of the Batman mythos that I've talked about on this podcast is that I want to see a Batman movie that, that isn't beholden to Frank Miller. Or Alan uh, Moore, like you're, you're right. Every Batman movie we've gotten has has owes some allegiance to both Alan Moore and or Frank Miller, including the one that's in theaters right now, The Joker. Wait, they, by, by Alan Moore, you mean? Wait, are, are you sure you mean Alan Moore, or what are you referring? Yeah, well, the Killing Joke, I think, is very. Oh, oh okay, sorry, I was, I, I was blanking on the Killing Joke. You're absolutely yeah, right. Right, right. So, and of course, Frank Miller, Year One is all over the Dark Knight trilogy. The Dark Knight yeah. Returns is all over the Burton movies and the Nolan movies. And the, and, the, and the BBS, right? Like, yeah, Zack Snyder loves Frank Miller's Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I won't argue that Frank Miller's Batman's not influential, right? Like, of course, the 86. Right. But he's not the only. All those freaking books are influential, right? John yeah, Byrne's yeah. Superman is the Superman we think of when we think of Superman. Yeah. 
George Perez's Wonder Woman is the Wonder Woman we think of. Because again, we grew up in the post-crisis comics universe. But I feel like they're not. That's not the only Batman, right? And w- one thing about the Nolan movies is that, as much as they're beholden to Frank Miller, he did throw in some Denny O'Neill. He did throw in some Neil Adams, right? Like totally. there was there was these other aspects to that Batman that I that I think is what's ultimately like so redeemable about the Nolan movies is that it's it is kind of an amalgam of of the various influences on Batman, and not just a straight up. I, I think that honestly, that's probably why I'm less enthused with Zack Snyder's Batman is that he he leans all the way into Frank Miller. Yeah, he certainly did. All all the fun lines in the those uh Zack Snyder DC movies from Batman were lifted kind of straight from Dark Knight as remember. Full thing about the the lesson my parents taught you and blah 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 right. or taught me and or and, and and even like he, you know, and defenders of those movies will like freeze frame certain shots. And say, see, this is straight out of Dark Knight Returns. I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Like, just because you can back map your way from a, a still image from the comics, which again is like, that's Zack Snyder's bread and butter. That's Watchmen and 300. Like, it's, sure. I can take these, you know, the whole adage of comics are just storyboards. So I can figure out how to like reverse engineer these images, these still images into a movie, you know? And it's like, movies are more than just a collection of still images, you know? Right. Which, to be fair, for a while, that was a thrill, the authenticity. Sure. Like, say, again, Frank Miller, the Sin City model of, like, this this right. might have broke that open with, like, this is the movie that, like, is painterly exactly like the comic book and achieves that. But, again, your point is very well taken. That Frank Miller is not the single canon Batman that we have to right. keep referring to. Although right, right, right. We've been using him like that for a while. but Exactly. And, and the funny thing is, even Frank Miller's, like, versions of Batman post- Dark Knight Returns have not been great. You know, like <laughs> they've been wonky. <laughs> they've been bad. That shit you know? is crazy. <laughs> all Star Batman and Robin was bad. Like Holy so Terror weird. was bad. All I mean, of it. Like, always have fun art, but like, like yeah. Like I don't, I don't think Frank Miller's written a good Batman story in thirty years. So let's like give it to other people. Like Paul Dini wrote awesome Batman stories. Let's do some more yeah, of those. Absolutely. You know, like I said, Denny O'Neill's Batman. Like, like there are other Batmans out there. So. What, and Jeff Loeb's Batman being one of them, like Hush was a great story. Long Halloween's a great story. Dark Victory is a great story. I'm a big fan of Greg Rucka's run on Batman. I would love to see like Gotham Central. I always wanted Gotham Central to be a TV show and they, they kind of half-assed it with Gotham TV show. It was like, right, right. that's not exactly what I wanted, but whatever. So yeah, there was so many Tom King for God's sakes. Like one cool thing about Catwoman being the second official cast announcement, because Jeffrey Wright is still not an official casting yet. But but Zoe Kravitz being like the second announced one to me feels like Catwoman's a big part of this movie. Anyone's been reading Tom King's run on Batman for the last two years. The whole relationship between Batman and Catwoman is is the heart and soul of sure. Tom King's run on Batman. And, and that's my favorite. I know that a lot of people have fallen off the Tom King bandwagon as the, the storyline has reached its conclusion, but... Maybe because I'm still like 20 issues behind. <laughs> I'm still I'm still on that high. I'm still loving everything I'm reading. That's okay, man. Yeah. But wait, catch me up. Are they still married? <laughs> Did they ne- well, spoiler alert, they, still- they never got married, and that's what okay. pissed people off. Oh, okay. Like, there was this whole build-up to the wedding, and then she leaves him, basically, at the altar. And and I guess people are super invested in that, so they, they really hate it. Like, Tom King got death threats after oh, that come issue on. came that- out. Oh, well, fine. I, storytelling wise, I think that's a classic and apt Catwoman move. Right. Exactly. They're always going to be. It would 
never reached that level of commitment. And when you mentioned the different origins earlier, like one of the cool things I loved about the Tom King run on Batman is that I forget which issues it was, but in the dialogue between Batman and Catwoman, the running argument that they have throughout the initial you know storyline is that they have differing memories of the of how they met, basically. Mm. And one of them remembers basically the original 1940 origin. And the other one remembers like the post-crisis Frank Miller origin. That's what's, you know, so like, and then they flash back and then it's like a, the, the artist Clay Mann, I think, or maybe Mike Gerard, whoever does the art on those, those issues will draw like a, a rendition of those classic origin issues, you know? And it's just, again, it's just kind of like an, an acknowledgement of like comics history, uh, but also putting a twist on it that it canonizes both of them because like they, it's just a different memory. Oh, okay. Like one of them remembers meeting on a boat and the other one remembers meeting on his, on the street. Mm-hmm. And meeting on the boat is a reference to like the uh, 1940, I think Batman number one or yeah, I think it was Batman number one with the first to meet Catwoman. And she's like in this purple costume with like a green cape and she's, oh, you know, my. stealing stuff off of a yacht. And that's that's the story. So that's what they're that's what Bruce is remembering. But then Selena remembers meeting on the street when she was, you know, a street worker in Batman year one. So like, right. It canonizes both origin stories as oh, that's like, cool. she remembers that how that's how they met and he remembers the other way and it's just again it's a nice nod to like comics history sure you know again the batman catwoman relationship in in uh tom king's run is as even if it pissed some people off like i really love their exchanges so my hope is that robert pattinson calls zoe kravitz cat and she calls him bat and totally that's, that's what they do in the comics so yeah, I ship them. I ship Batman uh, account. I mean, I, I'm such a basic yes. shipper. I like to ship whatever the canonical couple is, right? Like Lois and Clark. Yeah, I ship it. Like, does that count as a ship if that's the actual canon? You know, if, if it's being set up to be that thing? Sure. <laughs> if it makes you feel good, that relationship is really realized. I think that defeats the purpose of shipping. I think shipping is all about, like, fantasizing about the two characters that aren't supposed to be together. I don't know. Maybe I'm right, doing but, it wrong. But you possibly, but you know, you get there's a loophole because Batman isn't really good for anyone. Sure. I mean, <laughs> so I mean I think that's central to Batman. So even Catwoman is a stretch, so that yeah, you can ship that. We we actually have a little dialogue rant about this in the episode of Occupy Me coming up, so I'm glad you brought that. <laughs> well that that's a good segue because I think we're gonna take a break and on the other side we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about instead of breaking bat we're going to be breaking bad on the other side of this break but uh check out sounds from occupy me and then we'll be back on the other side hard knock media presents occupy me a new science fiction thriller oh man the world's gonna end isn't it yes but i would also like to say the world ending is not the end of the world let me rephrase Occupy Me is a new science fiction audio drama involving an alien invasion, psychic body snatching, and bizarre love triangles. Christina, for real, only if it's an emergency. (sighs) Roxanne, when is it not an emergency? To listen and subscribe to Occupy Me, find us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and head to thenerdsofcolor.org for the latest updates. Dominic. You were a Breaking Bad fan, am I correct? Yeah, I watched it pretty faithfully. And, you know, speaking of great duos in uh, <laughs> fiction, Walt and Jesse, like, you know, was heavily invested in them. 
and yourself? I loved Breaking Bad. It was one of the few shows that I tuned in every week without missing a beat. And I'm so old, I watched it when it was on AMC and not like on just on Netflix, right? Like a lot of people, I think, caught it afterwards and binged through. I watched it week to week. Oh, yeah. Brian Cranston. Speaking of Commissioner Gordon's and Batman's, he was always my pick to play Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> I always thought he'd be a great... I think he does in one of the animated movies, too, but... Uh, he might, yeah. I always thought he was a, he's got the perfect Commissioner Gordon vibe to him. He'd be good at uh, that. Although in Breaking Bad, he's like he's more Lex Luthor than Commissioner Gordon. And that was that was fun to watch. It was fun to watch his descent from like put upon chemistry teacher to like drug kingpin, which I think, you know, that was peak TV, right? That was the era of the antihero. That was the era of the bad man uh, being the hero of the television, right? So you had Don Draper, you had Tony Soprano. Walter White, I think, is definitely part of that pantheon. Yeah. And it was also... For, for good or ill, right? Because, like, that could also be the reason why we, you know, no longer have heroes anymore. Well, well, well no. I mean, I think it, it was interesting whether we talk, we're talking about the first decade of the 2000s crossing over into the first Obama term and superhero movies are not quite dominating everything yet. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's... Breaking Bad is a special thing. It's like the nerdiest non-genre show that I can think of. <laughs> Which is still super genre. I remember like when um, Nerds of Color first came out and we kind of debated internally, should we cover Breaking Bad? Uh, because at that point, it was very much, you know, we were trying to carve a space of being like the genre, you know, like nerdy stuff, like the typical comic book, superhero, science fiction, fantasy and then like, but Breaking Bad was like the biggest shit at the time. So I was like, sure, shouldn't we cover this too? How, how it's not genre. Yeah. But in a way, it kind of was because it was like the origin story of a supervillain. Yeah, totally. If nothing else, like Walter White was a supervillain. And some of the, some of the action on that show was very like bombastic. And it was, it wasn't, it was like elevated like reality. It wasn't all the way fantasy, but you know, like Gus Fring getting his face blown off. Yeah. It was pretty comic booky, you know? So anyway, I made the executive decision, and we we actually did a podcast about Breaking Bad, like back in 2013. So okay, I mean, yeah, I, when you put it that way, I think that's a very apt point. I, it is an extended villain story, and it becomes really like <laughs> he becomes a super villain in the sense that he becomes so much more villain than you ever would have imagined from that first season yeah. when he's like <laughs> this dorky chemistry theory. So in in the way, it's the best villain origin arc that that we have. Right. It, it also had that interesting thing. You didn't really know where it was going from the first season because you couldn't quite imagine the place that it was going. But when you got there, it seemed totally apt that, oh, did you just become sort of right. the devil? Yeah. And it makes sense. Like from from the very first episode to the very last episode, like nothing seemed like, well, that's because usually, you know, in any long running TV series, there's always this portion of like, it just feels like it's treading water or characters start making decisions where you're like that doesn't make any sense but you saw everything that happens was a logical extension of the thing that happened before so even if he's this meek mild-mannered chemistry teacher to supervillain heisenberg nothing seemed out of place right like it all fit together really neatly which i think is really interesting which takes us all the way 180 degrees to this thing that netflix just released called el camino yeah which is the Breaking Bad movie, which is essentially a two-hour epilogue to the Breaking Bad television series. And I want to ask you about it because as someone who loved Breaking Bad as a series, it's one of the few TV shows that unanimously people believed 
the finale was pitch perfect. Sure. Like every other lauded show usually has a divisive finale, whether it's Lost or Sopranos, even the Wires finale. I think people are divided over how I met your mother. People actively hate that finale. Like it's one of the finales that people who love the show start to hate the show because the finale is so bad. Right. Cause they thought something was being ripped away from them or cheating, but, uh, but Breaking right. Bad did resolve in the, like, you can't really say it resolved everything, but it, but it stuck the land. It emotionally resolved everything. Yeah, yeah. Cause, and for what it's worth, we're going to spoil not only the end of Breaking Bad, but we're going to spoil the events of El Camino. So if you have neither watched Breaking Bad nor El Camino, I suggest you turn off the podcast right now. Go listen to Occupy Me episode one. Yeah. Or actually, listen to that and go watch all of Breaking Bad and watch El Camino and then come back and listen <laughs> to the rest of this podcast. Yeah. But I would say it, it stuck the landing in terms of like emotional resonance for both Jesse and Walter White, right? Right. Well, I... Not necessarily for Jesse. That was kind of dangling. And it was dangling in a poetic way. Sure. But I just, I, I think it's it was a natural jumping off point for the movie, which we both watched. So for me, the movie does not feel like tacked on money grab or anything. For me, the movie sure. feels an appropriate part of the whole arc. And by the way, disclaimer, I haven't really watched Better Call Saul. Yeah, me either. So, which is interesting. I was going to say that, like, am I less of a... Breaking Bad fan because I don't watch Better Call Saul. I watched the first season. We're not completists on Better Call Saul. Sorry, sorry, Saul. I couldn't get into it. And, you know, people talk about it. It's it's as great as Breaking Bad was, but there's just something about that show that I couldn't get into. But which is interesting because, like, you know, I always assume maybe it's because it's it's about you know Saul Goodman and not Jesse and Walter. Which is the reason I come back to Breaking Bad was because of Walter White and Jesse. Yeah. Shit, what's his last name? Oh, Pinkman. Pinkman. Almost said Jesse Plemons, which is really confusing because he plays Todd, but whatever. <laughs> no, but that's the reason I keep coming back to Breaking Bad is because of those, the, the relationship between those two characters. So, yeah. you know, as, as funny as Saul is and the fact that Mike is like the second lead in that show, you would think, okay, it's for hardcore fans of Breaking Bad, but maybe I'm not a hardcore fan because I don't appreciate Better Call Saul. But all that said, I was worried about El Camino because I was like, I felt that, sure, Jesse, you know, he gets away from the Nazis and he has this like cathartic scream in the car and it ends. Mm-hmm. And either he drives away to his freedom or, you know, the cops pull him over and, and arrest him. Like that's, but I thought that that kind of ambiguity was the perfect end. You don't know whether he like how it exactly resolves, but you, you do get the catharsis of him escaping the Nazis and then having that final confrontation with Walter. That said, I'm not saying that El Camino feels tacked on, but I like I had a weird relationship while I was watching El Camino because I was thinking to myself, not I'm not saying nothing really happens. <laughs> like it picks up, it picks up literally like a second after the finale, because like you know the the classic shot is him screaming as he's like it's happily screaming, not like you know upset. And then the opening scene of this movie is him continuing that like jolt of joy. But then you see the cops, and it's about how does he get out of the situation? Yeah. I mean, well, one thing I think is that picking up on the point earlier of how one of the masterful things about Breaking Bad, this whole series, was everything seemed like a logical progression towards making this hugely dangerous sociopathic villain. Another thing it does is (laughs) I think it's really exploring the idea of bad just conceptually, because for all the logical progressions, I want to say that like (laughs) a whole lot of the plot events in El Camino come off of like really bad ideas which is kind of yeah. which is kind of like uh which is very appropriate to how breaking bad works it's kind of like they always manage to have an extra bad idea 
so that they can make more money and more meth. You know, they they can turn back at so many points. You know, in real right. in real life, we would just say, okay, this is a bad idea, stop. But so sure. it's kind of ingenious the way they keep introducing these bad ideas and make. Uh, I'm I'm saying like one of the first things they have is when he hooks up with his old friends that the idea for getting rid of the cars is a terrible idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I, I spoiler the to be fair, Badger and Skinny Pete were never known for their great ideas. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's why I think it's a texture of the show. It's like built in the show. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. what if you watched people who always make bad decisions and have stupid ideas and how they would play out because just uh, because that's unfortunate that's terribly real i mean you know right none of us are yeah and i mean that's a good point too because i think and i'm not saying i was disappointed I, I thought it was actually really well executed i was glad i watched i was glad it exists because it was nice to kind of return to that world and anytime you know one of your favorite shows goes away you always wish for like just i want to i want to spend some more time with those characters sure right? i guess what i was saying though is that like i don't know the necessity of why it exists beyond that i don't know if it added any extra layers or textures that didn't already exist it was definitely a high wire act because again when you have such a unanimously loved finale yeah there's nowhere to go but down and i'm not saying they went down but they definitely like i don't know that this was like it felt like necessary viewing maybe and and, you know and honestly maybe it's because to be completely transparent it's been six years and I'd st- I haven't done a rewatch of Breaking Bad, so it took a while to kind of remember everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe maybe if I watch all the episodes and then watch this, like right after, it'll feel more connected. It'll feel more like an epilogue. But having like six years of time in between the finale and watching this movie, maybe it's a mistake on my part because it took a while to kind of it took a while to like fall back into the universe for me. Sure. Well, but here's my question to you: Like, do you think? part of the justification for El Camino was did people want to see a happy ending for Jesse or sort of a more definitive more, ending more more definitive possibly happy and you know redemption kind of ending or was it more to revisit the um sort of torturous exercise of of watching just the you know, people go through terrible scenarios. <laughs> well, that's what but it does both though, right? Yeah, Isn't that what... Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I think it does that very well. I, I, I was just wondering. I mean, to me, the best scene, the best scene in the whole movie for me, I thought was the standoff in Todd's house when the fake cops showed up. Right. Like that, that like where you don't know what's like, oh, is this where it's all comes tumbling down for Jesse? You know, the coolest shot in the movie is when he's, I think he's hiding behind a, He's hiding. It's like he's in something. He's inside. He's something. jammed then, himself like upside down behind a mattress in like a nook right. of something. And then a cop. The cop. Well, you think he's a cop. It turns out they're not really cops. Yeah. Again, bad ideas. Just bad. Right. bad. Total. <laughs> totally wrong. But we see. We see. Like, I thought that standoff was actually better than the final standoff when he ends up killing them all. That that was very much in like the western like duel kind of thing. Yeah. It's even shot like a Clint Eastwood movie, it, which is kind of cool. It certainly was. They were leaning all the way into the western standoff motif the one thing i will credit vince gilligan is that like he tipped no hands with this movie like i don't even think people were aware they were making it but i remember i don't know if it was like a i think it was a football game or the oscars maybe or some some award show that like there was this like 30 second teaser of, of skinny pete in the interrogation room which isn't actually in the movie i don't know if it was a deleted scene or they shot it just for the teaser 
But like, I forget what I was watching, but then that teaser comes on and like literally the entire internet, like, what the fuck? Yeah. Is, totally. the, is, there, is there another Breaking Bad thing coming out? I, I do remember. It was a total surprise. So I will give Vince Gilligan credit for just like not giving away anything about this movie. And then it just kind of dropped. It was like, oh, now it's on Netflix. It was like, what? Like you knew El Camino was coming out, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, it's out already. Oh, it's, it's like, I can watch it right now. Holy shit. Yeah. You know? So I, I admire that aspect of it. That's kind of cool. Like I like going into things without, I feel like we live in an era where it's hard to be surprised by things. Right. We didn't have the excessive amount of casting information. Right. Like, I don't think anyone knew whether or not Brian Cranston would be in the movie until right. he showed up in the movie. Yeah. Or also to spoiler, that point, spoiler, he shows up in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't know if Jesse was just going to die horribly at any moment. <laughs> right. And I think it was pretty ingenious that like half the movie is like about how does Jesse get from point A to point B. But it also flashes back to like various points along the journey that fill in. I wouldn't even say they fill in any like plot holes or gaps in the story. But what I appreciate is that they add texture. Yeah. To the story that we got. So like the final scene between him and Walter White is actually lifted from like the first season or second season, like before they became enemies. Yeah. Which is really touching. It was a really touching. It was a lot. It's the last flashback before you find out what happens to Jesse. And it was at this period of time where like Walter and Jesse were still like on the come up. Walter White was nowhere near being a supervillain yet. Right. And they have this nice conversation about like college and like what he wants to do with his life. Right. And it was really touching. And I, I I appreciated that. I appreciated, like, the kind of texture it gave to the series. Yeah, and I thought, again, towards the it's been six years thing, it did feel like a necessary story to me to, unfortunately, brutally recall the trauma of being tortured and captured by those freaking Nazis for that long. Because, you know, mm-hmm. and in the moment, it was in the moment of... Breaking Bad last season happening, it was just like another terrible thing that was happening. Sure. By that time, the the terrible things are just sort of snowballing in this pile on top of each other right, right? in in this almost like spectacle kind of party trick kind of way. So in a way, to me, like six years later, when we're talking for about you know you know the effects of trauma and how we how we deal with it over time, like it sort of felt appropriate that that was kind of that flashbacky thing was how much that scarred and would stay with Jesse forever as it as as it does but mm. and also and also the good things i was also surprised how much jesse plemons was in the movie yeah that guy's like, fucking they creepy. go back to <laughs> yeah well they go back to todd quite often in the movie like he i mean you could probably consider him second lead yeah because he's in the movie so much because you know jesse flashes back to that when he first gets captured like when when they're putting him in the chains for the first time uh, there's this whole extended sequence in which todd like breaks him out but not for like to help him, but but he needs help disposing of a body, and it's just like you know. I mean, uh, Todd is Todd was one of the most interesting characters on Breaking Bad. A fascinating casual portrayal of total evil. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, no shade. I, we don't body shame here on uh, the Nerds of Color, but I will say, the six year real time gap between the finale and the movie shows the most in Jesse Plemons. Because he looks a lot older. <laughs> well, sure. No, with 2019 than he did in 2013. So we don't. It was just hard for me to kind of like turn off my suspension of disbelief that this was six years ago, Todd. Right. Well, <laughs> sorry. okay. Well, sorry, Jesse. Please. No, there's that. But I mean, yes, we don't body shape. But we do observe that movie movie stars get they get a little more chubby in the face when they've achieved a certain level. <laughs> thing. That's just a thing that happens. <laughs> I, it, it's it's more it's more to the issue of what happens when you have a breakout role you know, po- sure. post pre or post that. 
we 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 see it. Yeah, it's all good. No, I'm not trying again. It was just it was just most noticeable. To be fair, even Aaron Paul, yeah, looks physically older. Yeah, now, but that works for the idea because he's supposed to right, be just sure. more battered by time. Exactly right. It works the best for Aaron Paul to be a completely different character at the end of the movie. I mean, literally, he's literally a different, he has a different name and a different identity at the end of the movie. It was most apparent in that season two flashback where it's like, oh, this is supposed to be high school, Jesse, you know? Oh, yeah. And that one is a know. little off. <laughs> but fine, it's fine. Like, I'm, I mean, that that's a minor thing, honestly. Like, you're so wrapped up in the, in the emotion that it's, you yeah. know, I, I'm just being facetious. No, I totally get you. I will say, like, it's also really kind of heartfelt to see Robert Forster in the movie because oh, yeah. I watched it the day he died. Oh yeah, and and then so like to see him because he was he he was never in the series right like they reference his character once or twice but you never saw him in the mo- in the I, actual show. Right? I am this is the first time you ever totally seen. not sure about this. I believe in Breaking Bad proper he, he doesn't show. I mean he might actually be in that van but we don't really see. Him. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not Robert Forster. We've never actually seen the man. Okay, I, I'm actually not sure, so we should look it up. But yeah, but I think you're right. we should look that up. I'm pretty sure that's not the case because Robert Forster was. I mean, he's not a huge star, but Vince Gilligan doesn't got that kind of clout that he can get Robert Forster to just be in a van yeah. <laughs> for like a silent cameo. But in this case, in the movie, it was such a perfect grizzled Robert Forster sort of role, you know. Back, yeah, harkening back to that Jackie Brown part he did, right? Right, 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 right. And yeah, so yeah, it was it was it was quite a quite a an apt like farewell performance for Robert Forster. Yeah, totally. Any other favorite favorite parts or least favorite parts from uh, from El Camino? Well, I have a few closing thoughts on El Camino and Breaking Bad. I mean, like I think in the future, Breaking Bad might be studied as one of the great dramatic explorations of uh, white privilege, as our understanding of privilege, oh, yeah, um, for sure, evolves. And you know, in a way that we can uh, not. You know, get super upset, but just really understand how that works. Because again, back to the sort of central concept, he just keeps doing shitty things and bad ideas, and they're always getting away with it. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I, this is actually a point that comes up. I remember I mentioned in the early stages of the Nerds of Color, we did a podcast episode about Breaking Bad. In fact, the the clever title, if you want to know, was uh, that the episode was called "The One That Knocks Noc." Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but that was one of the points that came up was the fact that this only this story can only be told if his if he's Mr. White. Yeah. Right? Like if if he's if he's a black man, like it doesn't get past the first episode, right? Yeah. And I think that's intentional because I don't well put it this way. I don't know how intentional it was when Vince Gilligan sat down to decide I'm going to do this story, but like I I think you're absolutely right that the white privilege of it all is part of the story because if these were non-white characters everything that they're able to get away. the fact that walter white can get away with it and be this kingpin without any suspicion is because of his whiteness that's his ultimate superpower yes and contrast all these people of color who are also richly drawn characters but get mowed down or killed in his way pretty frequently he just right. keeps like just getting away with it which is fascinating and again it's the <laughs> it's an intelligent exploration of this sure. white privilege concept it's not just like labeling blah 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 it's it's to actually understand i think we yeah. get to understand a lot about what that does well it's definitely better it does it better than joker does sure because joker tries to do stuff like that and it can't right okay there you go i, I mean because both are similar right both are about how does a relatively right i wouldn't say normal but like you know a, a, a inconsequential person become a supervillain yeah 
right? Both movie and Breaking Bad does that, and one does it more successfully than the other. And that's the thing, ultimately, and I'm promised to never talk about Joker again after this one <laughs> last comment. That's okay. But ultimately, that's the problem with the Joker is that it's not it's not as effectively done as Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, and to be fair, Breaking Bad had like six seasons and a movie to quote Community to do that, whereas <laughs> you know the Joker only has the one movie. So, but yeah, and also along those lines, are we really hoping for? I found myself wondering if I was hoping for, for a happy ending for Jesse. You know, along the privileged lines, how does sort of a a basically a hapless fuck up of a guy become this sort of endearing? soul of the the robin that we all totally root for and mm-hmm. and the thrust of the movie is is kind of ends up towards him uh finding finding love again or at least the possibility of 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 of, of peace and you know we all mm-hmm. we all want that but it's it's an interesting place to end for you know for these two characters who basically spent the whole the all these years just you know killing and violating people in the course of right, having right. bad ideas but along those lines, I was just going to say it was nice to see Jessica Jones at the end. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if you if you appreciated the Kristen Ritter of it all, because I know how much you love Jessica Jones. Fake spoiler, yeah. It's not really Jessica Jones, but it is Kristen Ritter. And yeah, in, in another world, you know, Walter White would be the guy that Jessica Jones just like destroys in some, you know, superheroic <laughs> version of a story. But in the real world, that doesn't happen. And, you know, yeah, and that was the part that really got me. It was, you know, it was, it was romantic and got me a little choked up inside. It also could have been the mother with the kid who he had a relationship with with later in life. And I'm forgetting the character's name. It was sort of a more, in a way, more point. Andrea, I think. Yeah. But I get it. Chris, Chris, Chris is a bigger star or whatever. Well, she's the bigger star. I mean, she, she was the first one who suffered consequences because of his actions. Sure. I remember the scene, the episode where she ODs in his bed as being one of the most affecting uh, and that's really where you start to start to see Jesse realize the consequences of his actions. Right. And I think where the morality starts to weigh on his soul, I think starts with the death of uh, what's her name in the show. Oh God. What is her name in the show? What is her, I don't remember her name. Sorry, Kristen Ritter. And it was, and again, it's like, if you're going to have like a Brian Cranston and a, the guy who plays Mike, Shea, I don't remember anyone's, I should have done better job researching, but that's okay. You're, you're under the weather. You're, you're doing great. Michael Jordan. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, I mean, I'm glad El Camino exists. It made me want to go back and watch the do maybe like a show rewatch. Yeah. And and I think I think if I did that, if I binged like all of the shows and then watched it, I probably would have felt it a little bit more. I think again, my problem is not the show's problem or the movie's problem. I think it was just me not being connected because it was like oh right who's that guy again oh that's right you know what i mean and that was that took uh, it took me out of it a little bit because i think it's fair to say this movie doesn't work as a standalone film oh no it's totally if you're into breaking bad see this movie you'll enjoy it if you're not (laughs) it's weird (laughs) yeah exactly you have to learn a whole aesthetic in, in in the recap basically Basically, it continues to Breaking Bad. As, Thank as God for the recap, perfect. though, because yeah. if, if I had not watched that recap, I think I would be even more lost just because, again, and I didn't I hadn't watched Breaking Bad in six years. Like I never went back to it after the finale. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it was it was like there was a large gap between to be fair. You know, it's again, I'll bring I'm bringing crisis for 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 now, like as as happy as I am to see like Tom Welling and Erica Durant come back for crisis. If I wasn't like doing a current rewatch of Smallville, I feel like there would be some disconnect. Even to see, it'd be nice to see them on screen again. But like, 
how did the how did their story end? Oh, that's right. You know, like oh sure, totally. I think that ultimately that's the thing with El Camino is like because it drops you right in, and and it just took some like that's what I mean. Like when Robert Forster shows up, like are we supposed to know who? He, oh, I know they referenced this guy before, right? Or the fake cops is like they look familiar, but are they supposed to look familiar? like that kind of stuff? Like I remember yeah. like Badger and Skinny Pete, of course, right? Because they are pretty indelible characters. Like Mike being in the very first scene of the movie. Spoiler. Is it a spoiler if it's the first scene of the movie? But like, oh, like I know this guy. Like, I'm glad to see Mike and Jesse interacting. But wait, why is Mike and Jesse interacting? Oh, this must be a flashback. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that kind of thing. But yeah, I think I read somewhere in in a review of El Camino that like basically the movie feels like Vince Gilligan just wanted to do two more episodes of Breaking Bad. And okay, yeah, and that's kind of what it feels. I mean, it does. It works as like episode 14 and 15 of the last season more so than just like a standalone movie i think is i guess my thing like if i were to watch the finale and then these two and then this movie back to back it would feel more like a complete thing than like having watched the finale and then forgot about the show for six years and then watched it i guess is all oh yeah no it's definitely not a standalone movie but it continues the universe in uh it, it continues the universe as with the Incredible Hulk films after the Incredible Hulk TV series. That was the wor- worst possible analogy, but I'm just saying <laughs> as as far as format. Sure. It's, that, it's the it's Trial of Incredible Hulk. I guess and also, like, if they were to do a community movie tomorrow. Yeah. I think it would be like, oh, awesome, they finally got their movie. But then it's like, wait, what happened on the show? Like, you know what I mean? Like, Possibly. It's, it's, less, it's less exciting than as if they actually announced the community movie when the show was still on the air. One last thing related to El Camino. Now that they've done this, now that they've, you know, we've, we've kind of alluded to it already. Is there another show that you want them to go back and give you like an epilogue movie to? Is there another series that you just wish you had like two more hours with these characters? Oh, wow. That's an excellent question. You know, I'm sure there is. You kind of put me on the spot, so I can't think of Sorry. it. I can't think of it right now. I just thought of the question right now. Yeah, I mean, when... I mean, I guess what other shows were you into at the time that... Because that's the thing too with this is that whether or not the show resolved itself or didn't resolve itself, like you could always go back to just like, like Breaking Bad, I, I again felt like was the perfect finale. Whether or not we ever got a Breaking Bad movie, I think was regardless, but you know, right. I'm glad it exists. I mean, <laughs> I always wanted them to do more Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but that's a real old throwback and it has to do with just, yeah. <laughs> there was more, there was more material to adapt. So it's not quite the same thing. Whereas there was, I, I'm saying the models that show that sure. you just were so invested and could see another movie of, and I think it does work as a coda, as you said. Do you want a coda from another movie? What's the what's your show that? Well, I would. I'm not going to say Smallville since we're kind of getting it with Crisis. I think we are. I'll, you know what? I, which yeah. one I would I would say is a uh, Deep Space Nine. Oh, okay. I would love I would love oh. to have like a little coda movie revisiting the characters from Deep Space Nine because Star Trek Picard is the first time they're doing Star Trek post that era of star Trek, right? Like every new star Trek for the last 10 years has always gone back to the beginning, basically, whether it's enterprise or the JJ movies or discovery, like everything is always Kirk era star Trek. And I love D space nine. D space nine is my favorite iteration of star Trek. Yeah, totally. Ben Sisko, my favorite star Trek character by leaps and bounds. He went off and became a God at the end of D space nine. Did he? I want to see. <laughs> yeah, he, he joins the prophets. He joins this. The he goes inside the wormhole and becomes one of the uh, celestial aliens. Yeah, I want to see a movie twenty years after where Ben Cisco comes out of the wormhole. 
and Jake is a, an adult and Federation has moved on. Like basically, sure. At the very least, I want Avery Brooks to make a cameo in the Picard show because sure. <laughs> that's the only post twenty fourth century Star Trek uh, anything we're getting. So yeah, I'd like I'd like a Deep Space Nine movie. We'll never get it because I think this, the closest thing to Deep Space Nine movie is the documentary that came out a few months ago, and I think on the DVD there is a uh, animated concept trailer for or not even a trailer maybe the first episode of what a potential season eight would have been oh man well i think it's an excellent idea maybe i mean i i, I would think it's kind of dependent on how card plays out because you know as you just said they usually go back to the beginning and it's just a whole new cast it, it's true that some star trek series you want the, them to start you know pick up from that cliffhanger and that sound right like when explore the future which is what the whole point right <laughs> Strange new worlds, new civilizations. That's what I want. I don't want to keep going back to the same old worlds. <laughs> right, <with me. laughs> keep keep making first contact with the Vulcans again and again. Yeah. <laughs> again, exactly. Like, who are these? Who are these weird aliens? Oh, it's like the same aliens we've seen for fifty years. All right. The point is well taken. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Dominic Ma, what's nerd popping for you this week? Well, as far as I know, that Star Wars trailer is coming out today and i may do a deeper dive into this particular subject than you do <laughs> and yeah it's not like um there's the stuff on twitter is just mis misinformation it's just like if you look <laughs> at the windows of previous years when it's come out at the at this point in the football season on on a monday with this amount of days to before the ticket sales and really it's a, for me it's just about the tickets going on sale thing because we have this nice little tradition where i really try to get tickets for that opening night in a nice theater um and you know we can actually experience the movie as a movie as it's meant to be experienced in the theater right that will so that's what i'm really just looking forward to is to hunker down in, in front of the browser and um click on the ticket button get the tickets right 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 we'll see what's nerd popping with you right now so i love the studio ghibli movies hmm and for the longest, forever, they've never been available digitally. In fact, Miyazaki is allergic to having his movies stream. Hmm. The only way you can watch a Miyazaki movie is either uh, if you purchase the DVD or Blu-ray, or if you go, like Fathom Events has like Miyazaki festivals where they, they'll show a series of Miyazaki movies in the theater. Anyway, it was announced the other day that HBO Max, the uh, Warner Brothers streaming service, which has the dumbest name of all the streaming <laughs> services, <laughs> they they have the exclusive rights to stream all of the Studio Ghibli movies. Wow. At launch. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you're not an anime head, and I'm not an anime head. I just love the Miyazaki movies, but that's a big fucking deal. Like, these movies don't exist. You can't even, like, get a digital copy on iTunes. Right. Like they don't exist in a digital format at all. And that HBO Max, you would think of anything Disney Plus might get them because Disney for a long time had distribution rights to the Ghibli yeah. movies. But I think it's so great that Disney didn't get them because my understanding is Disney wanted to, you know, lock down all animated things around the world in a totalistic way. And <laughs> almost the only thing stopping them was the stream of Miyazaki movies. You know, which they did manage to repackage, but they wanted to control that repackaging. You know what I mean? Yeah. Famously, when Miramax had the rights to Princess Mononoke and Harvey Weinstein, that guy, wanted to uh, make edits to the movie, mm. Miyazaki, and this is a true story, 
sent a samurai sword to the Weinstein offices with a note that says, we don't cut anything. Wow. <laughs> and Balls. like, exactly right. You don't fuck with Hayao Miyazaki. I mean, the irony of, of course, too, is that like when Disney did have the exclusive distribution rights, the guy who championed Miyazaki the most was John Lasseter. So like, <laughs> yeah, two disgraced me too, you know, predators as, as probably the reason Disney is no longer associated with Miyazaki. But for the longest time, it was. I mean, in, in North America, the only way you could watch Miyazaki movies was through Disney. And, you know, if you think of Disney as like the all-consuming thing that, of everything we love, Star Wars, Pixar, and Marvel, it's still the reason that like you throw in Miyazaki there and you just like, you just own my soul. It's too, yeah, point. it's too much. They can't own all that soul. But but then also, I think, you know, for anime heads, I would feel like we've seen all those movies like six times already and, and have the... Yeah, that's true that's true like i don't know why i'm so excited because like i literally own every single miyazaki movie that's ever been released no it'll still be great and it's great that it's in this as with anything like i i i love physical media i own physical media but like the convenience of digital you know i I will admit like if i'm on a plane or i'm at a hotel i can just fire up from uh from my ipad or my phone it's helpful like I have to be at home in like the pristine environment when I throw on the Blu-ray, yeah. but I still like to own the physical yeah. media. I'm 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 <laughs> just because I'm an old man. Like I just have an attachment to like holding a disc in my hand. But no, I'm, I mean I'm happy that HBO Max has it. Like I'm, I was already going to subscribe to HBO Max because I'm already an HBO and DC Universe subscriber. This is going to be a uh, topic for a future podcast. But I just want to talk, hmm. or maybe I would write a post about this or something. I just want to talk about how fucking stupid HBO Max is. I I don't really understand. As a concept argument, but okay. You'll, I mean, you'll have, I mean, please feel, feel free. It's too much to go into now because we have to wrap up, but yeah, HBO, like, I think maybe next week's topic will just be like Keith rants about streaming services. Okay. But, uh, but no, but I'm, I'm psyched that it's coming to HBO Max. I think it's really cool. Like, if you want to just stream Totoro all of a sudden, you can. That's great. It will Um, be weird watching it on your phone, but maybe it'll be fun. It will be weird. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. Like, that's the thing is, like, if I want to, randomly watch a Miyazaki movie in a hotel I can't but now I can so mm. there there we go but yeah that's the coolest thing that I heard this week and the, wait one more thing about the story is that literally the day before the news broke that uh Miyazaki was coming to HBO Max I think Polygon the website mm. had an article about how Miyazaki will never stream <laughs> yeah <laughs> literally 24 hours later Variety was like exclusive HBO Max has the rights to Miyazaki so yeah well keeping up with the times it's it's a brutal process yeah well the one thing i think miyazaki will never do is cgi animation so that's maybe i just even as you say never never say never yeah as soon as i said that like you know miyazaki is like no that'll never i I think it's safe to say miyazaki will never do uh non-hand-drawn animation anyway dominic ma how can people get in touch with you on the internet Oh, well, you can find me at Dama, D-O-M-M-A-H, in most places. And I'm doing this podcast called Occupy Me here at Hard Knock Media Nerds of Color. Please partake. Yes. You can find me on Twitter at the real Chow, the underscore real underscore Chow. Follow the Nerds of Color at the Nerds of Color. And go to hardknockmedia.com to find all the podcasts in the family. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, npr1 everywhere you get podcasts please give us a rating and a review if you do we really need those ratings and reviews to get the podcast out to everybody else a new episode of southern fried asian will be dropping this week as well so please tune in for that support us on patreon.com slash the nerds of color find us on gofundme and buy some cool merch at t public 
all of that helps the Nerds of Color to continue being a website and exist in the world. Hey man, you you beat the jazz at the buzzer again. Yes. <laughs> now Dominic's gonna carry me off to the sideline, give me some Gatorade. Yeah. And uh, until next time, you earned it. Thanks for listening.